it's very important that people respect you. That's the first thing and the most important thing. If they like you as well, that's a bonus. But if they like you and don't respect you, it won't work. If you want to be a champion one day, if you want to go to the Olympics, you have to learn that failure is a part of the game. And it's going to be tough. And you're going to have dark days, but it's worth it. The iPhone was not the brainchild of Steve Jobs. The iPhone was an idea of his colleagues, and they had to persuade him that the mobile phone industry was one that he should even consider. Amazon, Amazon Prime, changed the way we shop. It was not the brainchild of Jeff Bezos. Equally, Warren Buffett and Berkshire Hathaway's single most successful investment ever, Apple. That was not an investment that Warren Buffett wanted to make. So, yes, these are extraordinary leaders, but arguably what they have done that is so brilliant is to build an organization that enables great people, many great people, everybody to use their brains. Welcome to the Connected Leadership Podcast hosted by Andy Lapata, the show where Andy and his guests explore the many ways in which relationships impact business decisions, make leaders' jobs easier, and help you to progress your career. Hello and welcome to the Connected Leadership Podcast. I'm Andy Lapata. Thank you very much for joining me. Today we are talking about collective intelligence, which really goes to the heart of much of what we talk about, not thinking you can do things on your own but making sure that you involve lots of other people with you. To join me for that discussion, I've got a former Ernst & Young London Entrepreneur of the Year, a former Times Young Businesswoman of the Year, and the co-chief executive of Board Intelligence. And I should just say that is board spelled B-O-A-R-D and not any other way. Uh, she has got a new book out with her co-author, Pippa Begg, and it's called Collective Intelligence, Build a Business That's Smarter than you. And as soon as I saw that, I thought, well, that's a topic for the Connected Leadership Podcast, if ever I saw one. So Jennifer Sundberg, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. So your book focuses on how you can make everyone in a business think better, rather than just having top heavy leadership doing the lifting. Is there a challenge that many of the people that get to leadership positions get so because of their intelligence, because of their ideas, and therefore they have the confidence in those ideas that they're the ones that drive the business and they're the ones that drive the team and the way forward. And so actually they don't delegate strategizing, they don't delegate decision-making, and they don't really use the power of their team. Yes, I think absolutely. One of the things that makes us innately human is, is we love a story. And one of the things that makes a great story is a hero and a villain. And I think we've all bought into this idea that great businesses are built by great leaders. And uh, yeah, I confess to being as, as fascinated as the next person in Elon Musk and what he's done today or what he's put out on X today. And uh, this stuff is compelling. But that doesn't mean it's true. That doesn't mean that in reality, that great businesses are actually a function of maybe these superstar leaders. And when you scratch below the surface of organizations that are enduringly successful, organizations that go on winning decade after decade, even the ones that may appear to be led by a superstar leader, scratch below the surface and what you find is something often very different to that. You find an organization that's actually designed to tap into the collective brain power. 
me give you a few a few standout examples. You know, if you think superstar leader, you're going to think you know, Jeff Bezos, you know, Amazon. You're going to think uh, you know Apple and you know, the wonders of the. the we all love Steve Jobs not there. Um, you're going to think, you know, maybe Warren Buffett, Berkshire Hathaway, but you know, let's take a run through those. So, uh, so the iPhone, the iPhone was not the brainchild of Steve Jobs. Right? The iPhone was an idea of his colleagues, and they had to persuade him that the mobile phone industry was one that he should even consider. Amazon, Amazon Prime changed the way we shop. It was not the brainchild of Jeff Bezos. Equally, Warren Buffett and Berkshire Hathaway's single most successful investment ever, Apple. That was not an investment that Warren Buffett wanted to make. So yes, these are extraordinary leaders, but arguably what they have done that is so brilliant is to build an organization that enables great people, many great people, everybody to use their brains. I was chatting to a woman who knows this much better than me, who's worked very closely with specifically Jeff Bezos. She was his right-hand man or woman in the early days of Amazon. And she went on to become Eric Schmidt at Google, to become his chief of staff. And she said to me, you know, the confidence and the vision of these superhuman leaders, it is incomparable. But they have also thought hard about how to help others to think well. And unquestionably, this is what has made them so successful. I, I love the examples. I think they're great. I, I love when you said what they have in common is they encourage other people to use their brains. And maybe that sets them apart from an Elon Musk. And I have a very dismissive comment that I could make about Elon Musk and that quote. I won't go there. Um, but yeah, I mean, I'm a great believer that great leaders is something I say in one of my talks great leaders lead from among not from above and they reach out to all the different skill sets and the different ideas that are around them let's focus on the downsides of that star leadership thinking first and then we can start to build in okay well how can you change that and how can you create collective intelligence as you put it so I can think of several answers to this question already. I'm sure you've got a lot. Um, but how does a top-led approach impact a business, the star leader who's the ideas man or woman? Yeah, so what's wrong with that, right? Um, so a lot of things. But I'm going to boil it down to three, the magic number. So I'm going to talk a bit about speed. I'm going to talk a bit about waste. And I'm going to talk a bit about hubris. So speed, first of all. So I think you know we all know that Today, it's the fast that eat the slow. It's no longer the big that eat the small. So speed to react and adapt is critical. At, you know, my day job at Board Intelligence, we lead an organization with over 3,000 clients working with their boards and leadership teams. And we know only too well how stretched boards are. Even the boards that we help to function at full pelt, there is a capacity constraint on what they can get through. So whether it's a board that hoards too much power or whether it's an individual, the constraint of how much they can simply process is, is tremendous. And these days, it is just too slow. If all of the important decisions have to go right up to the top, then you're just not going to be able to react and adapt fast enough to continue to win in this modern world. So first off, speed. I think secondly, I mentioned waste. I think as long as there are roles that only human beings can fulfill, why would you not want to tap into the grey matter of those people you are employing? You know, just what, what, a, what an incredible waste not to engage and, and you know, engage them in 
helping to spot the risks and opportunities and respond to them. Was in, I was inspired myself many, many years ago meeting John Timpson of the Timpson you know, Shoe and Key Repair brand. And he's a big advocate of what he calls upside down governance. So he's taken it even further and said, actually, it's all about you know, the people at the front line. He says, our store staff understand our customers best. And so we put them in charge. I think the principle of it is they are privy to information data points that the leader at the very top of the organization, many, many rungs removed, is simply not privy to. So why would you not want people on the front line to be able to combine what they are seeing, all of those data points, with their own grey matter to achieve what can be done? So I think just to say there's simply the sheer waste of not doing it seems in this day and age. None of us can afford waste. And then the third piece I mentioned, hubris. So, you know, okay, throughout history, and I, I'm a classicist, so go all the way back to Icarus, right? You know, too much power makes you stupid. There are studies, there's a psychology professor called Dr. Keltner who has researched this, and he says holding too much power for too long is like having brain damage. And when he's looked at the, the brain scans of people who've held power for too long, he said it is, they're like patients who have damaged their orbifrontal lobes. So I think the risk of an organization in which too much power is held too centrally by any individual or any group is that in the long run, it is their undoing, you know, and eventually, eventually they will fly too close to the sun. Elon Musk is an interesting example. I mean, he's obviously got some challenges right now with Twitter or X. Yeah, for sure. He's also incredibly successful, let's be honest, right? What's in picking away at Elon Musk? And again, I kind of enjoy participating in that. But, you know, he is an incredibly successful guy. But I think if I had to put a bet on it, you know, too much power for too long, history would suggest it is ultimately our undoing. It's really interesting you say that because I, I studied politics and regular listeners of the podcast. Well, now I try not to be political on here, but there are certain things that, that resonate for me in that space. And one of the things I've always felt is if you look at, at British political history in, in, in my lifetime, we've had two prime ministers that have served three terms. And both of them, Margaret Thatcher and Tony Blair, flew high in the first two terms and then everything went wrong. Do you know, it's really interesting. So somebody I, I have a lot of respect for, Lord Owen, he once said, uh, and obviously, you know, former, I think he set up, helped set up the SDP party yeah. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, held various other positions in government in his, Labor, in his career. Yeah. And he once said, you know, he said, throughout my career, I was on the lookout for a leader I could get behind. And he said, many, many times I found that leader or I thought I'd found that leader. I'd get behind them. I'd throw my lot in with them and off we'd go. But eventually, at some point on the journey, they'd come off the rails. And he said, the scales would fall from my eyes and I'd say, Ah, oh, I've done it again. I've picked a bad one. Like, what's the matter with me? What's the matter with my judgment? And he said, he asked himself this question post his career in retirement. He said, how did I keep getting it so wrong time and time again? I thought, you know, I got better. I, I thought I'd get better at it each time, you know, picking a winner. How come each time they let me down? And he concluded that the problem was they were the person they thought that he, they were when he backed them. It's the person they became through the access to power and too much power that changed the person that they were. 
and that, that then you know led to the great you know, tragedies and disappointment that he felt personally. And, and the advantage of, of the collective intelligence approach is that that leader can stay at the top for longer, I, I assume, because they are bringing in fresh ideas, bringing in new ideas and constantly allowing their own ideas to be challenged. Exactly. Exactly. Let me pick up on, on something else that you said there. When you were talking about waste, you talked about Simpson's uh, uh, co about upside down governance. One of the things, you know, my co-author Ruth Gottian and I have just finished writing the Financial Times Guide to Mentoring. So one of the things we've been looking at is reverse mentoring. And I'd be very interested in your thoughts on the importance of reverse mentoring. There are many reasons why you might have a reverse mentoring program. That's where a senior person gets mentored by a junior, for those who don't know, or someone less, less further down the, the ladder than them. But one of the reasons it's brought forward is that it's an opportunity for leaders in the, in the boardroom to understand what's happening on the shop floor. Is that something that you feel is a key part of collective intelligence? I think a key part of collective intelligence is starting from the premise that you don't know everything. And I think for us, at the heart of our whole methodology and the thesis that we share in the book is the humble question. And I think you know, what we're all about is trying to build a culture of questioning. I think you know, it's been said that we live in what is described as an answer-oriented world, which is a phrase coined by someone called Dr. Lanny Watson. And she said, you know, we put a huge amount of store in our society on knowing the answers to questions. You know, we grow up as, as kids at school being examined on knowing the answers. And in fact, not just any answer either, but very specifically the answer in the examiner's you know, answer booklet, right? That's how we get on in school, in university, is, you know, being the first to know the answer. And, and yet we also know that all of the great discoveries of, of mankind, great insights, great ideas, they start with a question. But we have questioning beaten out of us through our, through our younger years, our formative years, right? You know, the kid who keeps putting their hand up in class to ask a question is seen as a bit of an irritant, a bit annoying. And we soon learn to, to shut up, right? To, to put our heads down and to, to, to soak up the answers that we're told to. Apparently, we ask over 100 questions a day or thereabouts as a toddler. But by the time we meet, we reach the workforce, that's pretty much you know, disappeared. And, uh, and so what... What we're about in, in our book and in our work is helping us all to get our questioning mojo back, right? We're born questioners, but we lose it. How can we get it back? And so I think, yes, from the boardroom to the shop floor, building a culture of humility, a culture of questioning, and a belief that there are others out there who have value to offer us and experiences and insights that they can bring to bear. That's, that's a pretty key part of it. I'm, I'm not going to make any apologies for this for regular listeners of the podcast because you'll know, you probably know what I'm going to say already if you listen to this regularly. This has become a real theme in the conversations that the power of curiosity. I wrote a blog last month, or yeah, I think it was last month, based on a comment that was, or a quote that was delivered at a conference at which I spoke, which is walk in stupid. And the speaker said, you know, I walk into every meeting stupid and then just seek to learn. And the, the quote from this podcast that I keep sharing everywhere is Daniela Lander, who's the former chief talent officer, I think chief talent, head of talent engagement for Google. And Daniela said on this podcast that too often we walk into a room trying to be the smartest person in the room. And instead of EQ, emotional intelligence, we should focus on LQ, learning intelligence. Absolutely. Uh, 
So and I've heard it. Yeah, I've heard it said that, that uh, I think correct from Eric Schmidt. He said that you know we run this company on questions, not answers. And when Satya Nadella took over at Microsoft, and that was a business that was really not punching the lights out at the time that he came in, he recognised that he said I, I'd inherited a company of of world class experts. What I need is a company of world-class questioners and learners. And uh, as long as there's this belief that the expert has the answer, then they have a monopoly on having a point of view around any particular topic. And it's incredibly disabling. And it's, again, incredibly wasteful of all of the ideas and challenge and input that everybody else could otherwise have brought to bear. And I think looking at their success today, I mean, it's not singularly down to that, but it's a contributor. And I think we can all say that it's done pretty well for them. Our superstar leader, though, they don't want to be questioned. They don't want their ideas questioned. They don't want their decisions questioned. It's this mindset. It's this old-fashioned Michael Douglas Wall Street, Alan Sugar mindset of why are you asking me stupid questions? Just do what I tell you. So how do you change that mindset and, and how do you – uh, I wonder if part of it is that they just don't have the patience uh, for the longer discussion and the deeper dive. I wonder if part of it is that they feel threatened by their decisions being questioned and, and maybe their status as the smartest person in the room is is under threat. I, I don't know what the psychology of it is, but why do you think it is and what can we do to change that culture when it's led by someone who's so... Uh, stuck in the 1980s. <laughs> yeah, I, I suppose my guess is that it's something to do with insecurity. And it could be ignorance. It could be a genuine belief that they're the smartest person in the room and that everybody else is an idiot. And again, I probably go back to what I've said about hubris. You know, good luck to them. We all know that smart people can make stupid decisions. I mean, again, talking politics, you know, oh, I can't remember his name. He was the, the very brief Chancellor of the Exchequer. Quasi Quartang. Like, there isn't a question on an IQ level. This guy was really extraordinary you know the number of, did he win university challenge and he got scholarships at very young ages to very impressive places and yeah you know, this was you know he was intellectually up there but you know we, we saw played out in technical there a very smart person taking what turned out to be very dumb decisions i think it probably more often comes down to insecurity and i think if i were invested in an organization that was led by someone like that i would disinvest if I worked in an organization that was led by someone like that. I think I'd love to start looking around. But I think if you get pockets of that through an organization, don't you? It's not just the man or the woman at the top. It could be a team leader, any such um, position. And I think if I felt I had a position from which I could try to influence that person, I think what I would do is probably try to appeal to that insecurity, actually, but explain to them that they are being judged, absolutely, but they are being judged by their ability to bring in talent and enable that talent to flourish. And that it's their ability to do that that will determine their promotion. And I think it's when that penny drops and when people realize that as a leader, that is what you are being scored on. You realize that that's what the whole game is about, you know, finding extraordinary talent and nurturing them to be amazing. And, uh, you know, that's then the sky's the limit. We, it's played out for me in my own business many times. The people for whom there is no ceiling to the level they can rise in my own organization is determined by my belief that they will always seek out extraordinary people to bring into their team. If I see even a hint of that insecurity in them that I perceive is going to put some kind of ceiling to their 
appetite and commitment to hiring the best talent and enabling them to flourish. That for me is an immediate red light and that is going to hold their career back more than anything else. And that's a really interesting point in, in one of the negative impacts of a top heavy approach that I could see was succession planning. And it, and it can play out in this way that it not just are you not allowing people to shine and rise and understand what's involved, but you're not bringing those people into the workplace in the first place. Absolutely. Absolutely. Going back to, you know, this point of upside down governance, one of the, the potential downsides of that is that people might not actually get the truth. You know, that there, there's if people don't feel trust that there aren't going to be repercussions. It's the use of term whistleblowers for an extreme version of this. But if people feel that there might be repercussions if they tell what's really happening, they're going to present a rose-tinted version of events on the factory floor, on the office floor, the shop floor, whatever it might be. How do you create that environment where people can both share what is actually happening but also feel confident enough, whatever their level in the organization, to provide their solution. Mm. So this is something that I have quite a lot of experience in, in tackling. So again, going back to my day job, and we talk a little bit about this in the, in the book that we just published, but you know, the, probably the biggest fear in any boardroom is being blindsided by something dreadful that they feel they couldn't possibly have known about, but the world outside, you know, the media, the investment community absolutely thinks they should have known about. And, you know, every board member lives in, lives in fear of that. And so one of the questions we get asked is how to help to reduce the possibility of that, right? And then we also know that, you know, simply pumping more information into the boardroom doesn't solve the problem because you just end up with a thick fog of information. Just too much information is as bad as none. You can't see the wood for the trees, which is often predicament they're in. So how do you create that culture in which, and, and, and the skill set around the right information getting through? A lot of it is cultural. A lot of it is about, which, which is going to sound very vacuous, right? <laughs> because, you know, any mention to culture, like give me a practical action, right? And I will. So one thing that is incredibly simple is in, in terms of building this open information culture is to use all of those set pieces throughout the calendar of any business year, your monthly performance reports to your boss or to some exec committee, your board reports, your quarterly business reviews, your annual planning cycle, all of those routine activities throughout the year and bake into them a set of questions that you want everybody to engage with, including the question, what's not gone well and what's on my mind, what's concerning me, what's keeping me awake at night? And you normalize answering those questions and you make any performance report in the business from a report from the chief exec to the board, from the report from a, a team leader into you know, the ranks above them, systematically cover those two questions off. And if you don't cover those two questions off, questions get asked, right? So it's really very simple. But once it is understood that if you can't speak plainly in your report to what's not gone well or what's keeping you up at night, it does not imply that you're smashing it. It implies the opposite. It implies you don't have a grip on your business because everybody knows that business is not plain sailing. No matter how well things are going, it's never plain sailing. So what we explain when we roll out this approach within our clients' organizations, we explain that the reader, the person you're trying to persuade of whatever the report is that you're submitting, they are not really listening until you tell them the bad news because they're distracted by trying to hunt for it and read between the lines. 
And it's only when you can communicate the problems and what's keeping you up at night that they can have confidence that you've got a grip on your business and that they can see this candid exchange that enables them to trust you. But you've got to do it from the top down, right? You know, if, if any individual in an organisation to individually try to, to take this approach and to start sharing all to all, what's happening they're going to feel like it. they're going to feel like an idiot they're going to feel like everybody else is putting these varnished you know versions of offense onto you know up, submitting that up to their the powers that be and if i'm the one d- disclosing everything that's going wrong it's only going to reflect badly on me so you've got to do it top down the chief exec has to do it that normalizes it and then it needs to become understood and part of your organization's ways of working and if we do that you start to increase the probability that bad news will out so I tend to think in probabilities, not absolutes. Everything's a distribution curve. You're going to have your bad actors who are going to lie and bury bad stuff. Then you're going to have the people at the other end of the spectrum who are just wonderfully honest always. And, uh, you know, to a fault will always tell you, you know, the, whatever is going wrong, whether you ask them to or not. But the great mass of us, we're in the middle, right? And I think the job of, of culture and the job of leadership is to help that great mass in the middle to do the right thing and to increase and to make the path of least resistance disclosing the bad news in a candid upfront way when there's still time to do something about it. There's a great um, quote from Roosevelt in the 1930s that I often go back to where, um, I mean, to some extent, he's not talking about this at all, but for me, there's a great parallel. And he says, the government can deal with and should deal with the blindly selfish men. But that's the comparatively small part. That's the easy part of our problem. The larger, more important and more difficult problem is dealing with men who are not selfish and who are good citizens, but you cannot see the social and economic consequences of their actions. I think for me, it's a similar thing. It's, you know, it's how do you help the great mass of us in the middle to not sleepwalk into a place that we never meant to be, but where we find ourselves probably through omission, perhaps not disclosing early enough the bad stuff and just normalizing and creating a culture where the mass of us in the middle do the right thing. Andy's new book, Just Ask, Why Seeking Support is Your Greatest Strength, is out now. Looking at the importance of asking for help and admitting vulnerability, it's an essential read in challenging times. Order your copy from Amazon and all good book retailers now, or visit andylapata.com forward slash just ask. You've picked up on, on an extension of the theme of wanting to learn rather than be the brightest in the room that we've talked about a lot, which is a culture where failure is celebrated to a degree, to a reasonable degree, and not punished. In, in my book, Just Ask, I talked about companies who run fail fests where they sit around the room and they talk about what's gone wrong. We've talked on the podcast about pre-mortems as well as post-mortems around events. You know, so pre-mortem is what could go wrong and how will we respond if we do that? So I think you're absolutely right to say it needs to be part of the culture. It needs to be top-down driven. If it's done in isolation, you're going to lose out. Have you seen any companies that have done that particularly well? Have you seen any organizations that have taken an innovative approach to embracing failure and learning from it? And have they done it? Yeah, I'm sure there are. But what springs to mind is not um, any particular organization for me, but an industry. And I think the tech sector have, you know, innovated in this in a, in a very sensible way so the whole idea of retrospectives and uh, you talk about you know they use the phrase also the you know, post-mortems i don't think retrospective is the is the modern term for post and you know it's very much ingrained in tech cultures and tech ways of working that you do this 
as a, as a matter of course, which again, it all goes back to normalizing and creating habits, good habits for change. And uh, yeah, I mean, so we do this in our own organization, but we've taken it out of just the tech sphere and we apply it now in all of our functions. And indeed it goes back to, again, that culture of questioning, that culture of learning. And by making certain questions a habit, you, you make them both acceptable, but also very hard to avoid. You've talked a lot about questioning and yeah. questions. So, so what makes a good question? So, yeah, that's a good question. Um, so, I was waiting uh, for that. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so, yes, uh, simple ones. At the end, if I had to kind of generalize, I would say simple, simple questions. It's those how and why questions. So a client of ours was once uh, chief exec of the UK border agency. And uh, he told me a great story about being summoned by a select committee. And he was new to the job. So on this occasion, he was being, he's about to be challenged on issues that he had not himself been the agent of. But nonetheless, a pretty intimidating prospect. And he describes how he sat there in front of this panel who peppered him with questions, questions that they had spent hours or days honing as weapons and each one of these questions was intended to catch him out and to, de- to deliver the killer blow but he said that one by one he just deftly ducked and dived and turned down rabbit holes and not a single one of these questions landed but he said you know what they never asked me what's going on and what's worrying you And he said, if he'd asked me that, I would have answered them. He said, I was duty bound to answer every question that they asked me honestly and truthfully, but they never did. Their questions were too clever by half. And if you use questions as a weapon and you don't use them as a tool for genuine inquiry and as a tool to genuinely further the understanding and the collective intelligence of the group, then you won't get the value. It's so funny that you say that because only in the last few days, I've had this conversation with a mentoring group I was working with where we talked about the difference between questions which are designed to get across a point, to score, versus questions that are designed to learn. And not just the fact that if you design your questions to learn more, you go away in a better position to make the right decisions, go into what we're talking about, or win an argument, which is effectively what that conversation was about. But equally, the other person feels listened to and heard. And so they feel more empowered as well, don't they? Exactly. Absolutely. Absolutely. So I think you know, for us in, in business, we would say it's very simple questions like, you know, what are you trying to achieve? What's going well? What's not going well? You know, risks and opportunities. And where does this leave you? What do you need to stop doing, start doing, do differently? And what's your level of confidence? You're going to achieve your goals. You know, really simple questions. But nine times out of 10, you sit in a boardroom, leafing through, you know, FTSE 100 board, trying to answer any one of those questions and good luck to you, you know, because they're just not spelled out. The answers to those questions just are not, are not clearly stated. And so there's an enormous value to be had from just those, those simple how and why questions. They're kind of, you know, the, the why, the so what, the now what. So the natural follow-up question is what makes a good answer? I think two things. I think, first of all, it's getting to the nub of the answer, you know. So the stated question might simply be, you know, how is this or that going or, you know, the status of something. But the question underneath it is is going to be why, so what, and now what, right? So I think getting to the real crux of an answer 
is part of it. Ideally, you want to be pulling out some kind of actionable insight. I'm thinking about you know, the business context here of meetings and uh, decision making and so on. So, you know, an answer that answers the so what question is, is the first piece. And then the second piece is it, it needs to be, and it's going to sound obvious, but it needs to be spoken or written in a manner that the person listening can understand. And that might sound too obvious to mention, but I suppose I'm mentioning it because that is very often not the case. And again, given my, my line of work, which is working with large companies and their boards, you know, the challenge of clear communication is a huge one. And, uh, you know, the signals are not going to get through the noise. You might, you know, great thinking without great communication, it's going to wither on the vine. So helping management teams to learn how to communicate more clearly and more concisely is just as important as the quality of the thinking that they've done in the first place. I, I really like your why, so what, and now what. That's a really good structure for answering them. I've always talked about the, if you're giving information, imagine someone saying why or so what every time you answer it, like a little kid will, until it becomes pointless asking that anymore because it's so obvious and just distill it down. And the other thing I've talked about a lot, and this came up in a workshop I ran yesterday, and I haven't talked about it for, for a long time, actually, is what I've always called the 10-year-old test, which is turn around to a 10-year-old, preferably one you know, yeah. and tell them what you want to communicate and get them to repeat it back to you in their own words. And if they can't do it, then you're not going to land it. Absolutely. You know, we talk about the rubber duck test, and uh, it's a similar concept of, sort of you know, trying, and we take this from the tech sector, but uh, it's quite common in, in the tech world, in the engine software engineering world. If you've got a problem or a bug you're trying to root out, describe the problem to, you know, even a, even a, you know, a rubber duck, just anyone or anything, try and get your thoughts out of your head. And in doing so, by externalizing them, you can hear or see it played back to you and you can spot the wrinkles and so on. And if indeed, if the person that, not going to get much back from a rubber duck, but indeed, you know, it's only once you can articulate something clearly that you've really understood it yourself. And actually Richard Feynman talks about this. He, he talked about being asked to deliver a lecture on something complicated and physics related. And uh, he was asked to deliver a lecture to some first year undergrads. And he said, yeah, sure, I'll, I'll look up that lecture. And then he came back to the person who'd asked him to do this. And he said to them, sorry, I'm sorry, I can't. I'm not ready yet. I tried to put the lecture together and uh, it just didn't make any sense. And I, I, haven't, I haven't really understood it yet. Because until you can explain something to the point where indeed a 10 year old can understand it, we would say you haven't fully understand what you're trying to say yourself yet. Yeah, totally. Uh one of the things you mentioned earlier was the amount of ideas you can start to collate, the amount of information and data that can come in. So that comes to the question of if you are going to, to capture this collective intelligence, intelligence, particularly in a large organization, and you want a really open conversation, how do you manage that information? How do you capture it and then distribute that to the people that need to hear it and distill it down? so that you get a single simple idea that everyone can follow. Following what we've just said, it's really easy to understand. Yeah. So you're touching on a massive problem in business. And uh, communication has been described as the silent killer of, of business. And again, I, I feel this, I, I experience this firsthand, reading our client board papers, right? They're, they're, they're tough, they're challenging. And uh, Sandy Crombie, I think he was chief executive of Standard Life at one point, he went on to become a board member across many, many large financial service institutions. And he said to me once, he pointed at his face, and probably in his 
late 60s, 70s at the time, he pointed at his face and he said, this is not the face of a very old man. This is the face of someone who has spent the weekend poring over 550 pages of poor papers. And you know, they are drowning in this stuff and it's, it's not working, right? And it's not just a business problem. I mean, in 1940, Churchill had just been appointed prime minister and the Battle of Britain had begun. There were bombs falling over London every night. And he decided to pen a memo to his colleagues saying, basically, the way you communicate is awful and I need you to fix this. And he said specifically, to do our work, we have to read a massive papers. Nearly all of them are far too long. It wastes time. And I asked my colleagues to see to it that the reports are shorter. So... You know, at a time of existential national crisis, Churchill decided to pen a style guide. You know, you, you'd think there'd be other more urgent matters, but actually he knew that, that if we were going to stand a chance of winning the war, our ability to transmit information well between generals, between ministers, you know, it could be a matter of life and death. And it's hard. And it's hard because a lot of what we're taught at school is wrong. And so what we've figured out eventually through our own endeavours and through making, you know, through, through through the challenge of trying to fix this ourselves, is that what you need to do is unlearn. You need to unlearn a lot of what you are taught, what a lot of what you've been taught formally. And uh, what we set out in the book is five communication conventions that are very well understood by all of us, but are wholly unhelpful and that need to be consigned to the bin. And we set out five conventions to replace them with, uh, five conventions that work. And I think it's this this unlearning process that that is necessary if we're ever going to stand a chance of fixing this. So I have to ask you, what are the five conventions that we have to unlearn and how do you replace them? Okay, um, I won't go through all of them in a matter of time. And also I need to give you a reason to buy the book, right? But I'll <laughs> let me give you an example of one. So um, one convention would be serious subjects demand formal writing. Okay. Well, we would say that is not true. And actually you should write like a human being, no matter what you are writing about. So, you know, something comes over us when we're asked to write something important, you know, something for a very senior audience or something about a very major investment, you know, that's being proposed. And we adopt this tone of voice that, you know, I think we intended to communicate our respect for the gravity of the situation at hand and for the, the seniority of the audience. And it might sound disrespectful to communicate in another way. But the reality is that the people trying to consume this information, they are only human and first off, it's incredibly hard and incredibly boring to read something that feels like it was written by a robot that's incredibly impersonal and dry. You know, it's just hard to get through it, right? Secondly, if you use a long word where a short one will do, study after study has shown that it makes you sound stupid. Clear words, short sentences every time, they win. And then thirdly, if you write in this very dry, impersonal and formal tone of voice, it puts distance between your message and your reader, and it implies a lack of accountability for what you're saying. So we encourage, again, the breaking of the rules. We encourage the introduction of the first person into senior management writing. You know, I believe or I, you know, or we have missed our sales targets rather than sales targets were missed. You know, first person active voice rather than third person passive, because not only is it more readable, but it implies ownership of the message, accountability and leadership. I'm I'm smiling to myself because I'm going back, I would think, about 16, 17, 18 years. Uh, someone who was very experienced in the speaking world, working with large, very big-name speakers and big organizations and meeting planners, said to me, you need to uh, 
up your game in terms of your written language if you're going to tra- attract the big organizations and you've got to change your use of english and you know since then i i like to think i still speak and write pretty much the same way and i seem to be you know working with some very prestigious and, and prominent organizations and writing publishing books for the financial times so it's refreshing to hear that because i understand exactly where she was coming from but i think culture has shifted particularly in that time and we maybe blogging has changed that to a large degree but we do tend to communicate in a, in a simpler english these days and it's more accessible i believe anyway one other challenge that occurred to me in, in this space of collective intelligence and and capturing all the bright new ideas is what i call the squirrel trap i don't know if you know what i mean by the squirrel trap but if you've ever seen the film up film up uh the pixar film you remember the dog that's talking to you and then a squirrel goes past and he just changes direction and looks the other way i call that the squirrel trap where the, the latest shiny object distracts us so how do we get the balance right where you need to ensure that you are accessing new ideas and you are challenging the path you're on but at the same time you retain the right focus and you give strategies time to work yeah okay and i think that if you follow our our thesis from our book we're you know advocating everybody participating in in critical thinking and then communicating that thinking and that could quickly lead to chaos right you know very quickly if you have uh, rather than this top-down style of management, if you end up, if you have more of a bottom-up culture, then how do you stop everyone just pulling in a thousand different directions? Uh, you need focus. Focus is, is utterly vital. So for us, it's the third part of our of our thesis. So critical thinking, clear communication and focus. And without focus, you're going to, you're going to you know, be pretty exposed. And there's this great, I love your squirrel test. I think I, I think I like that better than probably the, the example in my mind, but I'll share it as an, as an addition to your thinking on this, which is, um, so the classicist, there was a, a Roman historian called Vegetius, and he was musing on what was it that the Roman army did, or the Romans, what was it that gave them their secret source that enabled them to conquer pretty much everyone they, they tried to? Because you know, he figured out that they are actually poorer, weaker, shorter, and less intellectually capable than their neighbours. But they keep beating the lot of them. How did they do it? And what he worked out was there was a difference. They were organized and their ability to get organized, to align and focus, that was their superpower. And that trumped all of those other qualities. You know, they were, they were even, even less intellectually capable than, say, the Greeks, but they were more organized. And at the end of the day, that, that won. So focus and alignment, yeah, you're lost without it, you're sunk without it, moving in different directions. So how, do you, how do you engineer that? Uh, I'll give you an example to make life of a context that's I think quite helpful of you know, people scattered across different countries, even. So Chief Executive of EasyJet, back about a decade ago, Carolyn McCall, worked closely with her just after she'd been appointed. And EasyJet was in a terrible place at the time. So this was the period of, of the volcanic dust clouds and oil spiking over $100 a barrel. Equally, you know, EasyJet's whole USP was low-cost carrier. But suddenly everyone was playing that game. You know, you've got Ryanair, you've got even BA, you know, playing that card. And so... You know, their winning ticket was no longer special and different. And she figured it, and the business was not doing well, right? So she figured she's going to have to do something pretty dramatic to turn this around. And she realized that she had a very demoralized workforce and she'd identified delivering excellent customer service as being pretty key to her strategy. And she wanted to attract business travelers and all that. She was going to need good customer service. But with this very demoralized, depressed workforce, 
was not going to work. And she wanted to switch the focus of EasyJet, which had always been profit, customer, people. She wanted to switch it around to people first, then customer, then profit. Profits will take care of themselves. So this is a pretty major shift in focus that she wanted to engineer. And so what she did was, again, she went back to all of these set pieces throughout the year, all of these rituals that were already set up, management reports, quarterly business reviews, annual strategy planning processes, all of this. And she set the questions that everybody would engage in when they come to prepare their reports and when they do the thinking and the planning in preparation for these set piece events. And the question that she put for everybody was, how do our people feel and how can we better support and enable our people? And she got everybody thinking and focusing on that question, on those questions. And you know, from the data dashboards to the narrative reports, everything spoke to those questions. And I think you know, he or she who controls the questions controls the conversation. So you don't want to shut down the thinking. You want to stimulate the thinking, but you need to put some guardrails around it to focus it productively in the same direction. And that, that is what we would recommend. So identify what are the questions that you want to get everybody focused on embed them into those set pieces and you'll find that you have an extraordinary and pretty rapid effect on the conversation in your organization and then you just sit there and you focus on delivering with reflection points along the way rather than the constant process of reevaluation. and of course you've got to keep asking the question you know yeah. is our focus still the right focus right i mean there was a i think the chief executive of netscape who you know the very fact that someone on this call like know who that is uh, <laughs> company didn't work out so well you know he said you know the chief tech said once we're you the main thing is to make sure that your main thing stays the main thing <laughs> the trouble is their main thing was the wrong thing so yeah. you know this is the trouble like focus can quickly become you know you can have too much of a good thing right so again making sure you ask the question and again you systemize and make it normalized to challenge whether the current focus is still the right focus or not is also very important Absolutely. Now, our whole conversation has been based on the premise that the superstar leader doesn't work out and it's not allowing all the ideas coming to come through. And if you open up the conversation, tap into the collective intelligence of an organization, you're going to achieve better results. Is that always the case? Uh, or are there times when what you're suggesting doesn't necessarily work out? Yeah, so the, the, the central thesis of our book is that if you can get everyone in your business to think really well, if you can help them to communicate that thinking really clearly and focus it on the things that matter most, then good things will happen. And so it is extremely inconvenient that I'm aware of many examples where in real life this doesn't play out, right? Because real life is real life is messy, but there's a lot to be learned from that. So if I give you an example, um, one, that I, one that I find intriguing, so Harry Markopoulos, he was a hedge fund manager and uh, he was under pressure from his boss to go check out this other fund that was really smashing it, really performing above the fund that he worked for. And he was challenged to go and find out what they're doing. And can we have a bit of that? You know, we want a bit of that performance. Thank you very much. So off he went, he checked out this fund and this fund was the Bernie Madoff fund. And he dug around it and he said, you know, it took me about four minutes to work out that this was a fraud. It took me another four hours of mathematical modeling to confirm that this was a fraud. And he wrote that up and he penned a 21-page memo called The World's Largest Hedge Fund is a Fraud. And he submitted that to the SEC. Okay, so we've got clear communication, tick. We've got critical thinking, tick. We've got to focus on the things that matter most, tick. 
But we all know what happened, right? The SEC ignored it. It was just too inconvenient, too difficult to imagine that this that this establishment figure, Benny Madoff, who'd been chairman of NASDAQ and all sorts, right? It was too hard to let go of the idea that, that he was a good guy and to embrace the possibility that he could be a crook, right? And there's a phrase for this in, in behavioral science. They call it belief perseverance. And this plays out all over the place. I mean, there's a, you know, we're all familiar with these doomsday cults who believe the world is going to end on a certain date. That date comes, that date passes, the world hasn't ended, but somehow they still believe that, you know, they come up with some way of fashioning why. And, you know, and it's easy to dismiss that and to think, well, that's because they're daft, you know, they're daft, but I'm not daft. But you look at the SEC situation, you think, well, hang on, the SEC, you know, it's hard to believe that they're daft, right? We are all susceptible to this. It's a human quality, belief perseverance, our unwillingness to let go of strongly held prior beliefs. And what that tells us is that collective intelligence doesn't work in pockets. Great thinking that lands on deaf ears is going to go nowhere. So you need to create a culture throughout your organization or throughout your team, whatever community it is that you're working with. You all need to share this deeply held appetite for critical thinking, for questioning, for challenging yourself and what you think you might know. And otherwise you're going to struggle and you're going to hit a wall like, like Karen Markopoulos did. Jen, I'm, I'm pretty sure that your great thinking won't land on deaf ears uh, with this podcast. Uh, I've, I've, I've really enjoyed this conversation. Thank you so much for joining me on the Connected Leadership Podcast. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. So thank you so much to Jen for her, bringing her insights to the table. There's I have so many notes. There are so many things that I, I could share to summarize. It was, it's really interesting how so many of these conversations bring up the same theme, the theme of curiosity, the theme of asking questions, not assuming that one person knows all of the answers. Jen positioned this as really important in terms of enhancing speed, avoiding waste, and avoiding hubris. And I, I think even just those three things summarize why this is such an important thing to hold on to. And those uh, that questioning of why, so what, now what, and the answers uh, really stood out for me as well. But as I say, I'm looking at a page scribbled with lots of notes. There's a lot there. Get the book. <laughs> Don't rely on my summary. Get the book. It's called Collective Intelligence, Build a Business That's Smarter Than You uh, by Jen Sundberg and Pippa Begg. And it's well worth the read. I hope you found this interesting. I think you could do your bit to enhance the collective intelligence of your network by sharing this episode with them. So please do do that and build your own individual intelligence a bit further by joining us next week for another episode of the Connected Leadership Podcast. Thank you for listening to the Connected Leadership Podcast. If you found this valuable, please subscribe, tell your colleagues and friends, share on social media, and post a review on the podcast channel you use to listen to it. And of course, join us again soon for another interesting interview and great Connected Leadership tips.